0: So remember on the playground, um, the, the game you might play where you, two, two kids would interlock their hands like this and, uh, and, and, and see who could bend the other, the other uh, fingers back the farthest. What's that game called? Mercy, mercy right? Do, do kids still play that game? Is there an app for that now or that we play it? Okay, and so, and so uh, I haven't played in, in a long time, but, but from what I remember, to be the one that cries out mercy... It's kind of a humbling thing. It's actually a humiliating thing. It's a, when you say mercy in that game, what you're really saying is, I surrender. Um, you admit defeat and surrender when you cry out for mercy. And to be at someone's mercy is a way of saying, hey, you can either help me or hurt me. It's up to you. I have no power in it one way or another. So does it feel good to be at someone's mercy usually? I think the answer we were looking for is probably no. But uh, uh, thank you for the participation. Uh, does it feel good to be at someone's mercy? Usually not. And so like we've used the police example a lot lately. You, maybe you're, you're doing 20 miles an hour over the speed limit in a school zone. You get pulled over. He's got you, right? He's got you. And you're totally at his mercy. Maybe you forgot to pay that bill and the bill collector calls or the debt collection agency calls. You are totally at their mercy. Maybe you failed in your marriage big time and you're at your spouse's mercy. To be at someone's mercy is to say, you can either help me or hurt me. I really hope you help me. Um, There's something humiliating, definitely humbling about being in that position. Um, and, And to show mercy to somebody is to offer help when you are in a position to do harm. To receive mercy from someone is to receive help when they are in the position to do harm. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, right? They will receive mercy. Uh, all, all during in Jesus' ministry, desperate people, desperate people cried out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy is something desperate people ask for. If you're playing the game mercy, you don't ask for mercy if you're winning. You don't ask for mercy if you're just starting. You only ask for mercy when you are at a point where surrender is your only option. And what I want us to see this morning, more importantly, what Romans 9 teaches us this morning, is that salvation is rooted, is grounded in mercy, not in merit. Salvation is grounded in mercy, not merit. If, if, if this salvation thing was about who deserves it, God would be sitting at a table all by himself. Salvation is not rooted in who earns it or who deserves it or who merits it but it's rooted and grounded in God's mercy. So Romans 9 through 11, 9, 10, 11, one of the toughest passages in Scripture. It's kind of like if you read the Old Testament and you're doing great in Genesis, you're doing great in Exodus, and then you hit Leviticus and it's like a brick wall. Reading Romans is kind of that way. Well, you're rocking along Romans 1, 1 through 8 pretty well, and we hit Romans 9 and say, what in the world is going on here? Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, you, regard as one of the toughest passages in the New Testament, and that's because Paul deals here with some issues that are really beyond our ability to to fully comprehend. Um, And the key word, though, I think it helps if we zero in on this key word. The key idea of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is mercy. Mercy is a word that's used over and over and over again. God's mercy, over and over and over again. And mercy is such a key word for this passage, Romans 9, 10, 11, that when Paul summarizes this, these three chapters in Romans 12, when he shifts gears again, he says, Therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Mercy is the key idea, not just of Romans 9, but of Romans 10 and 11 as well. And so the meaning of these chapters, though, is kind of hotly debated. The meaning of chapter 9 is hotly debated for a couple of reasons. One, Paul deals with the tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. And so do people get saved because God chooses and preordains who gets saved? Or do people get saved because um, they choose to accept the free gift? And this is an issue that's been debated for a long time. And we're not going to solve that this morning. Um, but one thing we can do is we can acknowledge that there's a tension. There's tension in Scripture between these ideas of God's sovereignty and human's freedom. And, and, and there's a lot of... Uh, so in this debate, a lot of times it's, it's kind of framed in the Calvinist versus Arminianist debate. Calvinism or Arminianism. And the, Calvinism is a system that says God pr- chooses these ahead of time to be saved. Who's, who's saved? Who's damned? Uh, and then Arminianism says, yes, God's sovereign, but he doesn't work out his sovereignty that way. He works out his sovereignty in a way where people have choice of whether or not they they accept the free gift or not. The thing about isms, the thing about Calvinism or Arminianism or liberalism or conservatism, the thing about isms is that once we buy into an ism or a system, we start to bend the scripture to meet our ism and our system. And what we need to do is... Come to the scripture and let the scripture shape our systems rather than letting our scripture our our, our system shape God's Word. Claire's mud? Yeah? Okay. And so so let's try to do that. And let's be humble as we do that. People have been debating this for a long time. And the the, the, the reality is there's, there's passages of scripture that really emphasize God's sovereignty and God's choice. Uh, and, and there's scriptures that really emphasize the choice that we have to make as humans. And so we can live in the tension between those two realities. In fact, uh, Romans 9.22 says, uh, you know, what if God chooses, you know, ahead of time to make a, a, a lump of clay destined for wrath and another one destined for, uh, you know, for mercy? And then in, 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 in Romans 10.13, he says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so right there in Romans 9 and 10, there's a tension between God's sovereignty and our freedom. And there's other tensions in Scripture that we have to, live in. And there's another tension right here in this passage. So uh, Paul ends Romans 8 on this note of joy, like nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And woo, yes, and it's joy. And then he begins Romans 9 with, I'm exceedingly grieved and my spirit is heavy and grieved and in pain because my brothers, the Israelites, have rejected overall and, and, and for the most part have rejected Christ. So is Paul joyful? Or is Paul grieving? Do we have to pick one or the other? He's both. At the same time, he's experiencing deep joy that nothing can separate us from, from Christ. And he experiences deep grief that, his, that, that, that there's people in his life that, that don't know that and haven't embraced that. Uh, and so another tension we embrace is what a lot of theologians call the already and the not yet. You're already new in Christ. But yet a lot of that isn't yet. There's still a not yet portion of that that we're waiting for the world to be fully new. And so... We don't have to pick either grief or joy or already or not yet. We don't have to pick either God's sovereignty or human freedom. And maybe this sounds like a cop-out, but I don't think so. We have to affirm that both are true. God has, uh, nobody gets saved unless God wills it. And yet you must choose. And both of those realities are, rather than planting our flag in one or the other, let's just embrace the tension that Scripture teaches both. The other area that makes this passage difficult and controversial is, uh, is Paul describes the relationship between Israel and the church. And when Paul talks about Israel, he's not talking about a piece of land in the Middle East. He never addresses a piece of land or a geographical area. He's talking about people. He's talking about his people that for the most part have rejected Christ. And what Paul does, does not do is he doesn't offer really any of the Uh, of the answers or solutions that modern people propose. He proposes something uh, biblical, obviously. Paul doesn't promote universalism. He doesn't say, you know what, Jews can be Jews, Christians can be Christians, Muslims can be Muslims, let's just all, we're all gonna get there somewhere. That's not what he teaches here. Paul does not teach here a two-track system where God has one plan for Israel, he's got a different plan for the church. That's not the new covenant. He does not teach uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, sadly, the church has this history of blaming Jews for the the death of of Jesus. And and there's this anti-Semitic streak throughout church history, stain on church history. And if you can read Romans 9, 10, 11 and walk away hating Jewish people, you're not paying attention. This isn't anti-Semitism. And finally, he doesn't teach replacement. He doesn't say that God has washed his hands of Israel and now he's starting all over with a church. What Paul does teach is that God all along has had this vision of one people. United by the Messiah, saved by grace and through faith, and now through the the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Christ has plugged in the church to that one people that he always had in mind. He's gonna say in 11, there's still a plan uh, for for, uh, much of Israel to return to the Lord, but we'll, we'll get to there in chapter 11. So the questions that this passage is actually asking, and it's important that we don't try to make this Passage answer questions it's not asking. The questions it's asking are the questions Paul poses. Is God faithful? And what about Israel? So at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Somebody might say, well, Israel separated from God and they were God's people and then they've overall rejected God. Has God failed? Is God faithful? What does that mean for us? All right. And so uh, what does God's faithfulness look like? And Paul's answer is going to be that salvation. Uh, more, more specifically, to be chosen by God is rooted not in merit, but in mercy. So let's read those first five verses. everybody alive? We Need to get the AED? Okay. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, here's an issue that my spirit uh, or my conscience and the Holy Spirit are united in. He says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, these are two very strong words. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. He says, verse 3, I, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, for they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, that's the Christ, who's God overall blessed forever. Amen. I it says, from them, man, it was the Israelites that were the patriarchs, and the promises were given to them, and Christ came from this very people. And he says, but for the most part, most of Israel has rejected Christ. And he says, I am torn up over that. And so there's a principle here that God's mercy moves us to grieve for lost people. If you have encountered God's mercy, if you've tasted and experienced God's mercy, the result of that is going to be you will grieve for those who don't know God's mercy. And that's what Paul, as an example, as a model for us here, he's modeling. He said, man, my people, I mean, we went to the same rabbi schools. We grew up on the same block. We grew up in the same, uh, the same neighborhood. And, and these people have rejected Christ. And his response to lost people even fellow lost Israelites, isn't anger. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not, well, I figured it out. Surely they can too. His response is Holy Spirit-fueled grief. I wonder when was the last time we shed tears for people that are lost. Grief over the lost is part of the fruit of God's Spirit working. In our lives, and he's joyful. That's Romans eight. But even though he's joyful, he has grief that everybody isn't experiencing what they could in Christ. His grief is raw and real, and it's an example to us. And so, why is he grieving? Paul grieves because he knows that sin is real, and the consequences of sin is real. He said back in Romans eight that, uh, that, that verse two that that the, verses one through uh, through four that. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. It's that Christ took the condemnation in his own flesh for our sin. And Paul knows that if, if you don't embrace the condemnation that Christ took on your behalf, that, 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 that you're going you're gonna to be condemned if you don't place your trust in, in, con- in, in, in the condemnation that Christ took. And his grief is deep because he realizes that sin is real. Paul's grief is deep because he realizes that everybody spends eternity somewhere. If Paul thought that God gave out participation trophies and we were all just going to end up in the same place anyway, he would not have any reason for grief. If Paul thought God was the Easter bunny and it's just based on merit, you're a pretty good guy, come on in. He wouldn't have any reason to feel grief, but he's grieved because he knows that everybody spends eternity somewhere. Do you know that? I mean, that flies in the face of what we're taught in our age. We're going to come to that in a minute. But Paul believes that everybody spends eternity somewhere. And because sin is real, because hell is real, Paul grieves because the rejection of his people, of the Messiah, means they're separated from God. And that breaks Paul's heart. So Paul's showing us how to pray for Israel. Pray pray for Israel the same way you pray for any nation. Pray that people will come to know Christ. He shows us how to pray for your lost friends and your lost family. He's showing us the attitude to have toward lost people. Not pride, not superiority, not anger, but grief. People that have tasted God's mercy want to see others experience that that mercy. And Paul here is identifying with Moses. Remember back in Exodus 32, the people of Israel, uh, were, were, you know, they were delivered from Egypt, and then they get to Mount Sinai eventually. Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, and at the very moment Moses is getting the law from God, the people are down there breaking the law, worshiping a golden calf, and Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets. He's so excited to share what God has said, and it's just like one of those moments where, you know, as a leader, there's moments where you just want to just say, what is the point? You know, I'm just shaking his head, and, and he comes down with the tablets, and the people are worshiping a golden calf, and there's a big fiasco, and there's judgment that happens there Moses goes back up to God's presence and God says I am done with these people and 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 Moses says blot me out of your book blot my name out of your book but don't blot them out of your book he intercedes and what God's people need is an intercessor it's easy for us to become accusers of the church Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the church already has an accuser his name Satan the church doesn't need another accuser the church needs an intercessor when you're prompted to complain intercede, pray. Paul identifies with Moses' intercession. He, Paul says, I wish that, he said, I, I wish that I could be, I, I could wish that I was accursed and separated from God. Would you pray that? Would you say, you know what, I'd spend eternity in hell if somebody else could spend an eternity with Christ. That's a pretty crazy prayer, isn't it? Not saying you could really do that, but Paul says, I could wish that I would be accursed so that my family in Christ would know, would know him. And because Paul is grieved over the state of the lost, he goes around the world to share with just anybody that'll listen. Paul's pain and God's pain are united in this desire to see the lost come to know Jesus. And Paul's like Moses interceding for the people. He's like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, 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 how have long to gather you to me." And Jesus tells us in Matthew 9:35 through38, he says, "The field is white for harvest." He says, "The harvest is plentiful, but what the workers are few." Isn't it a little bit encouraging that even Jesus struggled to recruit people, to tell people about Jesus? Like that was, even Jesus had a hard time getting people to tell people about Jesus. And he didn't say, so sell up and swell up about it. He said, pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to go into the harvest. And so Christians are called to intercede for the lost. Christians are called to intercede for the saved. We have that example In Paul, we have that example in Jesus. And so salvation is grounded in God's mercy, not merit. When we encounter God's mercy, we want to share that mercy with others. And then we see in these next few verses that God has always operated on a mercy system, not a merit system. God has always operated through mercy rather than merit. And so if we're going to understand these next few verses, it's really important that we understand that what Paul is doing here is he's retelling the story of Israel. He's retelling the story of Israel in order to take us to the destination, the telos, the goal, the end of that story, the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So the question, has God's word failed? Paul says, no. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abram because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What Paul says is the same thing Jesus said, John the Baptist said, and the prophet said before them. And that's just because you're born into uh, the, the race of Abram doesn't mean you belong to the people of Abram because being part of God's people has always been rooted in mercy. It's always been by grace through faith, always. Just because you're a member of a church does not mean you're part of God's people. Has God done a work in your heart? Has God done a regenerating work in your heart? Have you encountered God's mercy? Has his mercy woken you up? That's the question. Uh, he says, so, so uh, it's not all the children of Abram. He says, God chose uh, Isaac and not Ishmael. And then he says uh, in verse nine, uh, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return. Sarah will have a son, and not only so. But when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So before uh, Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, God chose to mercifully work through Jacob. Even though Esau hadn't done anything good or bad, Jacob hadn't done anything good or bad. What Paul is showing us is that God, throughout his history of dealing with Israel, always operated not on who deserved it, but on, uh, on who he chose to rest his mercy on. And somehow that that's God's prerogative to do that. He goes in, in verse 13 and, and, and he quotes Malachi who says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have, have I hated, and I wish there was a way I could soften this but there's no way I could soften it to take the full sting out of it. It's what, what, what Malachi was saying was that God chose in his mercy to rest his mercy and love and his call on Jacob and Jacob's people. And he chose in his sovereignty to rest his, mercy, or to rest his wrath on, um, on Esau. But the point Paul is making, and the point Malachi made hundreds of years before that, Malachi was telling Israel... Jacob, he wasn't telling them, so God called you, so go ahead and puff your chest out and walk around and strut and say, look at how called we are, look at how chosen we are. What he's telling them is you're called and you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. It was totally rooted in God's mercy. You should be in the same boat as Esau, but God's good. But what, what was happening was Israel was strutting around like they had something to do with it and Malachi says, don't you know that you're only called because God's merciful? Why did God save you? But is it because he saw a little spark of something in you? And man, I, I see potential here. Oh yeah, if I just really stoke this fire. No, he saved you because he's merciful and because he's good. And we sing that song that says, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it, right? Malachi and Paul are saying, to be chosen by God is fully rooted in his mercy. God saves because he's merciful, otherwise nobody would or could be saved. So we bristle at this idea, though, right? Uh, in the next couple of verses, uh, verse 15 uh, or verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In that very conversation between Moses and God where Moses is saying blot me out of the book but give them another chance God says I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy I have compassion on whom I have compassion and God's saying I've chosen to rest my people my my mercy on this people Israel I've chosen to rest my mercy on them he says it's not about who's working the hardest it's not about who's running the fastest but it's about mercy And that can just give us a place to pause and just catch our breath for a minute. There's some comfort in this. It's not the one that merits it or deserves it that God uses, but the one God shows mercy to. And, and, And God shows his power through the Egyptians and shows his mercy through the Israelites. And all of this happens to move God's big story of redemption further. We bristle at this because at the end of the day, most of us have a high view of our merit. And we have a low view of God's mercy. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a good old boy, man. God's not going to send me to hell. He's not going to send Uncle Billy to hell. I mean, I'm good. I deserve it. By my standard, I am killing it, right? Even after, listen, slavery the Holocaust, countless genocides, we still think we're pretty good. Man, and we're not. Our track record is not good. God raised up Pharaoh, hardened his heart. After Pharaoh hardened his own heart over and over, and God showed his power over Egypt, he shows his mercy over Israel, and all this was done to move the story forward. That one day, and, and, and as, as, as Paul moves into the next part of Romans 9, he continues to tell the story through the prophets Isaiah, Malachi, Jeremiah, Hosea. And they talk about this whittling process where God just continues by his mercy to choose a few, a remnant, not all of Israel, but a remnant who he sustains by his mercy. And what Paul's telling us is that if it hadn't been for his mercy, there would have been no Israel left. If it hadn't been for God's election that is rooted in his mercy, not our merit, there would have been no Israel left. But the end result of all of that mercy upon mercy was God whittles down the people of God until there's just one. The just one. And we crucified him. So talk to me about what we deserve. Talk to me about how great we are. There was just one jesus the chosen one the elect one and what does jesus do on the cross he kicks the door open for all whoever will trust him man that's good news paul continues to tell the story he says in verse 19 you'll say to me then why does he still find fault if god's sovereign why does he find fault who can resist his will? And, and he says, who are you? O oh, man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump a vessel for honor and a vessel for dishonor? When, when Gretchen was making that heart out of the clay earlier, what if it had stopped and it had jumped on the microphone and said, I don't want to be a heart. I want to be a caterpillar. And, and, and she would have said, you know, no, you're going to be a heart. I'm the one molding you. And what Paul is saying here, he's acknowledging That this is offensive, this is an offensive idea for us, especially it's an offensive idea if we haven't drank deeply of Romans 1 through 8 where he establishes we have this big problem and there's one solution, the person of Jesus Christ. We say, how could God save some and not others? Or how could God allow anybody to go to hell? Or how could God call this a sin when I enjoy it so much? kind of God is he? We're very religious, even if we're not religious. And so we construct this idea of God that's so good, there could be no hell, there could be no eternity, there could be no separation, there could be no sin, and then we judge the real God for not living up to our standard. The problem with this world, please hear me, this is the most important thing I'm going to say, the problem with this world is not that God fails to meet our standard. The problem with this world is that we fail to meet His. And His response to that, His response to that is mercy. And mercy is found in one place. It's found in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And we can say, well, if I was God, I'd have been merciful in all these other ways. But you're not God. And, not, and neither am I. Paul's saying, Who's the, who are you to answer back to the, 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 the molder? It's like, basically, Paul is saying, I think, you go create your own universe. And you can run it however you want to. When you create a mountain range or a, a moon or a mule or a molecule, we'll listen to how you would run things. But until that happens, this ain't your world. And there is a God of this world. There is a Lord. There is a King. And he said, mercy is his way. I have a low view of mercy. I tend to have a high view of my merit, and that is upside down. So Paul tells a story all the way through Romans 10, 11. The goal of all of this, the goal of choosing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on, was that Christ might come. The just one might be crucified. That he might take on himself the condemnation we deserve, and he would overcome death through his resurrection. What do we do with that? God's people are mercy-shaped people. God's people, people who've tasted God's mercy, are shaped by that mercy. Randy Alcorn says um, something pretty profound. He says a lot of profound things. But one thing that he says is he says, if we realize we're undeserving, suddenly the world comes alive. Instead of whining about everything that goes wrong, we're surprised at God's many kindnesses and our hearts overflow with thanks. Recognizing we're undeserving of God's mercy doesn't mean we have to walk around like this all the time. Oh, shucks, I'm just an old miserable guy. No, recognizing we're undeserving means I could say, man, God is good. Man, God is merciful. What an amazing God. And instead of saying, man, I deserve to be, man, I get in this, I deserve this. I deserve to be treated better. I deserve blah, I deserve this. Do you do that? Cool, just me, awesome. (laughs) And the reality is I deserve hell. But God is merciful. And when that's my attitude, the world seems to be, instead of stacked against me, the world seems to be a wonderful, beautiful place. Charles Spurgeon said, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. So the fruit, as we we wrap up, the fruit in your life that you have embraced God's mercy is that you're grateful to God. Is there a sense of gratitude toward God, or is it a sense of entitlement? People who have tasted God's mercy are grateful to God. Second, The greatest evidence, I believe, that you've experienced God's mercy is a willingness to share it with other people. People who've tasted God's mercy are merciful people. So in your relationships, are you keeping score? Or are you offering the mercy that you've been offered in Christ? And are you willing to offer, are you willing to do whatever it takes that your neighbor, your uncle, your spouse, whoever that unbelieving person is in your life, whoever your one is, Will you do whatever it takes to share the gospel with that person? So a a high view of God's sovereignty does not mean that we don't sense a burden to share the gospel. There's people that will say, I just believe God's sovereign and I believe, you know, he chooses who he wants. And so, nah, I'm just going to sit in my pew. I mean, God's got this. That's not a high view of God's sovereignty. That's a low view of God's mercy. God's mercy. Paul has a high view of God's sovereignty. Paul has a high view of God's mercy. And as a result of that, he is like a fool. He pours his life out day after day, city after city, that just one more might come to know Christ. So which is it? Does God choose you? Do you choose God? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody gets saved apart from the merciful work of God. Nobody. And the scripture says you must choose. You must choose. Both and. So as the band comes up, Jesus is that chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one, the elect one, the faithful one. And so when you trust him, you become in Christ. And so what's true of him, stay with me, becomes true of you. And so... To be elect or to be chosen, to be part of God's people, if we want to know what it means to be chosen, we need to look at Jesus, who is the chosen one. What did it mean for him? Well, it meant death on a cross. It didn't mean a Cancun, all-inclusive, life wasn't a resort for Jesus. Life was cross, and that's what it means for you to be chosen. Because to be chosen by God means that you become a vessel to demonstrate God's mercy to a world desperately in need of it. That's what it means to be chosen. It means you become the masterpiece through whom God demonstrates his mercy to this world. To be be chosen for Jesus meant mission. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I just want to gather you. Oh, woman at the well, can I talk to you about living water? hey blind man i see you what what can i do for you what do you need it meant mission it meant pressing outside the boundaries it meant taking the gospel to one more it meant death for jesus it meant resurrection for jesus it meant offering blessing to all so who's your one be grieved that that one doesn't know christ do you have empathy for that one that doesn't know christ are you clear that that one is gonna spend eternity somewhere, and God is not the Easter Bunny. Your job is to share Christ. God's job is to save. I get, that, I get that out of order sometimes. Maybe you do too. You gotta do your job. That's to share, and that's all your job is. God's job is to save. You can't do God's job but you can do your job. God in His mercy, He expects you and me to do our job. Our job is to share. His job is to